0: Welcome to Peace Lab. I am Hannah Heinziker, one of your trusty co-hosts here on this podcast exploring the face of midnight peacemaking in the 21st century. And I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Boone, the director of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Hey Jason, what's happening in North Carolina today?
1: Not much. You know, it's going to be a great day here because it's above freezing finally for the first time in a little while. And so everything above that is just fantastic. So good to be back in the Peace Lab.
0: That's right. It is kind of thawing out here, too. We have a brief reprieve. It's 55 degrees today, but then I think it's just downhill from here, so I don't know. And in our third chair today, we are joined by Lorraine stutzman Amstutz. We're very glad to have Lorraine here with us. She's the Restorative Justice Coordinator for Mennonite Central Committee U.S. So, Lorraine, hi. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks. Great to be here. And tell, tell the folks that are listening where you're located and how your weather is today, I guess. Yes, I'm located in Akron, Pennsylvania. It is warm and balmy at 50,
2: almost 50 degrees today. So nice. after the cold snap we've had, it's all relative, right?
0: I used to think 50 was cold, but right now it's feeling pretty good. That's good. So were you all part of that, uh, what did they call it, the bomb cyclone? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, we
2: didn't get the snow. We, we got a little bit. I think we were right on that kind of bubble where it could have been really bad. Um, but we got the cold snap, you know, the below zero, minus 10, whatever that was. But we didn't get the accompanying snow, which I'm so incredibly grateful for.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. Let's just jump right in here, Lorraine. We have lots of different ways we could go with you in this conversation, but as we said in your introduction, you work with restorative justice as a coordinator for MCC. For those who are listening who may not be familiar with that term, just give us kind of the cliff notes version, a quick overview of what restorative justice is. Okay. So when I think about restorative
2: justice, um, and we'll talk a little bit more probably later about some of those different areas that I work in, I think some of the confusion around restorative justice is because we don't have one agreed upon definition, because we can go in so many different ways. And because we think of it as a framework, or at least I think of it as a framework for the work that I do. And so it's based on values and principles. And so when I think about How I do the work that I do, it's around approaches to ensure that people are treated with dignity, that people are treated with respect. As we look to be in community with one another, how do we create those communities of care for one another, whether that's in the church, whether that's in our schools um, and universities, whether it's within our congregations or within our homes? How do we talk about principles that allow us to treat one another respectfully? How do we recognize someone else's truth when it's different than ours? How are we responsible for our own actions? How do we hold people accountable? For me, that's very different than just punishment. So it's holding all of that kind of together in a way that, whether it's involving crime and working with victims and offenders, whether it's talking about harm and how we treat one another, as I said, in our congregations and homes and organizations, you know, how do we hold all of that in balance as we move forward in looking at a process that allows us to, again, be with one another in
1: community? I like that. So these are principles and these are sort of values and things that you're going to apply in a lot of different situations. And you talked about church and family and home. Uh, Maybe could you talk a little bit more about how this is applied and maybe more specific ways? I think a lot of us who have somewhat of a familiarity with restorative justice think about it, you know, when it's used with the court system for like court diversion or if it's used for disciplinary problems in schools. I don't know, could you talk about some of the the ways that, that restorative justice is being applied and used and everyday settings?
2: Absolutely. So I think, um, I think traditionally when we thought about restorative justice, it has been, that was where the early kind of processes started. It was very much within the framework of the legal system. And so one of the early kind of practices of restorative justice, what some people might be familiar with, um, is victim offender reconciliation programs. So, that understanding that when someone has been harmed, how do we address the needs of the person harmed and how do we also hold the person who has committed the harm accountable? So, some of those ways were actually bringing them together because there was the understanding that the legal system doesn't necessarily meet all of the justice needs that people have. So, how do we find other ways to do that? And for many victims, one of the things that we heard often was, I just want to know why. I want to know. How this happened, I want to know why it happened, and so that's where a lot of those processes came about. The victim-offender reconciliation program, as I mentioned, and again, within our Western context, um, it would have started in the '70s. And so, we're wanting to also acknowledge that these are some of the processes that we use then, and that we continue to use, and some of the practices are not new. It wasn't invented by those of us who started earlier in the field, that these are indigenous ways of being in community together. So sometimes when we talk about restorative justice, and I've asked some of my indigenous colleagues, what is the language that would you would use around restorative justice? And they would say, well, we don't have a language for it, because for us, it is a way of life. And so I think there needs to be that acknowledgement that we've come up with some kind of these Western ways of doing it, Uh, So when we have these dialogues between someone who is harmed and someone who has committed that harm, that's where a lot of that started. I think probably 30 years ago, when I was working for the Center for Community Justice in Elkhart, I remember thinking some of the cases we were doing were around theft, around burglary. I would have had no idea that 30 years later, we would have half of our states in the US who are doing these dialogues and crimes of severe violence. So we also do those dialogues at that level. So, for instance, in Pennsylvania is one of the states where we have a program that's been operating for about 20 years. Any victim, it's victim-initiated. So, it's not the system initiating it. It's not the person who was harmed-initiated. It's a victim saying, I want to talk to the person who perhaps murdered their loved one. Murder cases and severe sexual violence are the ones that we do most often. We have trained about 120 facilitators in Pennsylvania who can do those dialogues, and so most of the time, those people are incarcerated, those who have committed the harm. So there's trainings happening at that level within different states. And again, that looks very different than when we're talking about community level crimes because we're not talking about ways of repairing that harm. We're simply talking about that acknowledgement and that giving voice to that victim to be able to say, this is how this impacted me and for that person to hear that and to also, again, it's a respectful dialogue. We lay that out, it takes months of preparation, but we talk about some of those principles that I mentioned earlier and what that dialogue looks like. So in that arena, that's still very much where restorative justice practices are are being used. Um, Probably one of the areas that it's also, I, I think has been, I'd say in the last decade, something being kind of universal, is talking about it in restorative discipline in schools. We know that there's what well, we, we talk about, this uh, pipeline to prison at MCC. We're also doing some of those pipeline to prison learning tours to help some of our constituents understand what's happening uh, within our prison system, who we are incarcerating. Um, when we talk about disproportionate minority representation, it's true, and we can document that. But we also talk about that happening at, the sc- at when kids are in elementary school. This is not something new. It's not just
0: happening for juveniles or adults. It's happening in elementary school. Yeah, a little bit more just about what that pipeline to prison means or what, when we're referring to that, it obviously creates an image in your mind. But. When I talk about the pipeline to prison and how that starts at
2: that early age, we know that there are, when students are suspended or expelled from school, but particularly when schools use suspension, we know that they are suspending students of color at a higher rate than they are suspending white students. And we know that some of those offenses are the exact same offense. There was a Texas study that was done in 2011 of about a million students that it followed for six years, which is really an amazing study that really highlights kind of those disparities. And so we also know that students who are suspended from school, uh, the repercussions of that are uh, they may then do poorly in school because they, so of what they've missed. So it just kind of has that ripple effect once they've been suspended from school we also know that those same students are more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system within a year than those who have not been suspended so just knowing that that then pipeline continues once they've been involved in the criminal justice system then that continues and follows them so I think trying to break that cycle at that early stage is some of what restorative discipline talks about again it's about How do we create those healthy communities within our schools? I think schools recognize that not only is it about teaching, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, which we also know varies depending on the school, but just how we create community, um, how we live out the values that I talked about, how they help students relate to one another, how they respond when there's conflict so that it doesn't lead to a fight that leads to a suspension. So those are things that I think we, in restorative justice are paying much more attention to working with schools to develop some ways of being, are more about accountability and community building than simply punishment. So that's the restorative discipline in in schools piece. One of the areas that I've also worked with is churches, whether it's in conflict or whether there's something else happening around sexualized violence, which is one of the other things I think we'll talk about, looking at ways of Helping people think about conflict in healthy ways. We do these exercises around conflict. As much as we don't wanna think of conflict as being a negative thing, we do. And we have different responses to conflict. And they're not bad, they just are. A lot of it is who we are. I think there are tools to help us to be at different places and that's piece of the work. How do we provide those tools for people so that they are, again, finding ways to relate to one another, especially when Some of the issues that we've talked about are so polarizing, we know that. So how do we find ways to have, uh, engage in healthy dialogue about the issue and not about the person? So finding ways to do that, I think, is something that we need to speak into more.
0: Are there particular stories or a particular story that you retell over and over um, that illustrate how restorative justice can work or be effective?
2: Hmm, yeah, there are many. So let let me think about which, which one. Certainly when I think about Crimes of severe violence, I know for me that that is something that working in that area and doing some of those cases has, I think, in some ways been life-changing for me. I have seen people who are at their most vulnerable, both from the victim perspective and from the offender perspective, of having to talk about probably the most horrible thing that they've ever either done or have happened to them. I think of one of the cases that I did a number of years ago where this mother whose son was murdered wanted to meet with the person who murdered her son. And I remember her saying what happened to my son is something that I I just can't speak about. I just, I don't know how to articulate the emotions that I have around that and all of the unanswered questions that I've had. And it was 10 years later that she said, I want to meet with the person. And I remember her talking about. What that meant to her to have him say yes that he would meet with her, and so what that created for her was the sense of validity for you know the feelings that she was having and, and her son's life. and one of the things this person was an inmate, he's serving a life sentence. I remember him saying he talked to his mother about meeting and his mother said, "Oh, you will meet with her like you need to meet with her if that's what she wants. And she said, and I want to write a letter to her and I remember her having to ask her, do you want to receive a letter from his mother? And she said, absolutely. She said, the reason I do this is because I need to make connections. And she said, I know it's a negative connection. I never wanted this connection to him and to his family, but I have it. And so I want to do whatever I can to make that connection a positive one because I believe that's what we're put here on this earth to do. So there was that. that's how she entered into that space And I remember after coming out of that dialogue, which was about six hours long, and having her say, I have as much peace as I can have after 10 years. I have as much peace as I can have. And for him to be able to say, so we go back into that space three months later just as facilitators to ask, where are they at now? What what has this been like for you? For her to say, she said, that was the first time that I now, I talk about what happened to my son. I talk about it because I can now. And for him to say, you know, for 10 years, I hoped that I'd be able to tell her what was going on for me and to have that opportunity was life-changing. So I, I'm not saying that all those dialogues are life-changing for people, but there are some times when there are those moments for people that you feel like providing that opportunity has made such a difference in their life. So for me, that's just a really significant piece. And. So there are many stories, not necessarily all of them around crimes of severe violence, but even in schools and sitting in spaces and in these circle processes that we talk about and hearing students talk about their conflict. In one school that I was in, I remember the students requested a circle and they were sixth graders. So they sat for an hour and they had this conversation and they were all friends, but they talked about things come up in their friendships. And so there were these seventh grade girls and so... You know, at the end of that, I always said at the end of an hour and, you know, a box of tissues later, they're like, we're good. And I remember saying, you know, you asked for this space to be in the circle. How did you know to do that? They said, oh, we do this all the time. Like, this is the way that we are. We know it's better to come into this space and have a place to talk about it than do it out in halls and get into fights and do it on instant messaging, whatever it was that they were doing. But how did you know to ask for it? Like, how did you learn that? And they said, oh, we learned this in third grade. And so now this is what we just do. I know that for some people, I remember someone commenting that, well, you think they learned it by now, like they still have to come in and do this circle. And I said, for me, that's the beauty of it, is that they know they can ask for it. They know they can come in and have this space to do that. And I think that's a tool that they've been given that we should be grateful for because they're going to teach others. And they know that it's not a bad thing to have conflict. It's what you do with it. Where do we take it and how do we engage, I
1: think? I love that concept of, you know, let's, let's move towards these difficult things. You know, these, you talk about these serious crimes and victor offender things and these conflict situations. Let's move toward it with some skills and with some attitudes that can be helpful. And that's something that your work has taken you uh, into some difficult spaces, including within our own church when we start to think about sexualized violence. And, and you've been uh, called upon and involved in, in some of these cases and issues with churches. I don't know if you'd care to comment just uh, in general on some of the advice that you would give a church uh, if they start to come into a situation where there are accusations or there are stories or there are conflicting stories of sexualized violence that happened in a congregational setting.
2: I think uh, the first thing I'd say is call, you know, call and ask for outside help you know, there are many things that, that we know about that. There's there's that tendency to say, well, we don't want to talk about it outside of here. We want to keep things, uh, we want to handle it ourselves. We don't we don't want anyone further hurt. So there's not that transparency. There's that layer of secrecy um, until often that explodes um, and often becomes much more difficult to, to talk about. Um, I think Not being afraid to call in outside people to help to have those kind of conversations, I think, can be transformative. I am in the process of working with a congregation right now where someone has been accused of, in the legal sense, there. so there's been a crime that they have said has been committed. And so the the church was just at such a loss. The pastor held on to that information for a little while and then realized, no, I need to have a conversation about this. We, as a congregation need to process it, even though we don't know what the circumstances are. So they've been engaged in about a three-month process already where they've just really thoughtfully talked about, as a leadership team, how do we present this to the congregation? How do we hold? One of the things I say to congregations is there are victims in your congregation, not necessarily of this person, maybe or not, uh, who's ever been accused, but they're watching what you're doing right now. They're paying attention to how you're going to respond. Is this something that's going to be swept under the carpet? Is this something that's going to be defended? You need to pay attention to them. You need to acknowledge that. And you also need to also hold intention. that person who has possibly committed this harm, how do you also walk with that person? So in this case, the church surrounded that person with a small group, but then also opened up space um, on a weekly basis for people to have these dialogues together. So I guess that's one of the things I think that we as congregations, and one of the things that MCC has been working at over the past three years is talking about We Will Speak Out initiative that started with the World Health Organization that MCC signed on to and became an institutional sponsor of the We Will Speak Out campaign. We were listening to um, constituent voices. We did a, a listening project where we asked, You know, what is it that you need? What would be helpful for you? And people repeatedly, including pastors, uh, talk about training. You know, we want to talk about this more, but we need to know how to talk about it. I think we first have to find ways to talk about healthy sexuality because we don't really do that very well. So how do we talk about healthy sexuality so that we don't feel like we're always in crisis mode? How does it become normative to have these kind of conversations around this? I think we have to think about it. It's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And so how to not only as congregations, but also organizations, you know, how do we find ways and how do we provide tools for one another so that we can have these kind of healthy conversations, I think is really significant.
0: As I'm listening to you talk, one of the concepts that seems so tricky in restorative justice work is this idea of forgiveness And I feel like so often the stories about restorative justice that make the big headlines are these stories of kind of radical forgiveness in the face of violent crime or sexualized violence. Is forgiveness in that way, is absolute forgiveness always the goal of these processes? How do you hold that intention as you're trying to walk alongside both parties? I think it's very tricky sometimes to not make it sort of the idol. (laughs) It is so tricky. One of the things when I do trainings of those uh, for,
2: for facilitators who are working with victims, one of the things I always say is, we can't put any of, of what we bring to this into uh, as an expectation for people who are involved in these processes. It is not for us to decide. It's not for us to decide if they're going to forgive or not, if they have to forgive. Um, for me, forgiveness is not an event, it's a process. When I've talked about restorative justice practices and processes, I think it provides opportunities for that to happen, but it's not prescriptive. So I never start by saying, Here's a process whereby if you go through this, in the end, it'll lead to forgiveness and you'll feel better. That is not for, I think, for us to decide. Um, Again, we can provide opportunities. I think we have to start with what are your needs? And if we're not meeting people's needs, where they are, again, whether that's for justice, whether there's other needs that they have, then I don't think they can be at a place where they really can have that. And I think there is that understanding that forgiveness is something for them. It's not something they do for someone else. They do it for themselves. And so they have to be at a place that's ready for that. So I think we, um, as a faith community, can provide those opportunities. I think we can provide ways of walking with them, but not anything that we have to prescribe, nor should we make people feel badly if they're not at that place. And I think the church sometimes that's difficult because we want to say you just like when we talk about reconciliation, that's, that's also a difficult word. I don't go into a process using those, that language. I use it if they use it, but I don't come in saying, you know, we're going to be reconciled to one another. What does reconciliation mean? You know, if it's an abusive or it's been a violent relationship going back to that and say, they're going to be reconciled. The best thing that maybe could happen is, is that, they decide to not be in the same space. They decide to be separate. They decide there has to be that separation. And that can be the best and most life-giving thing that we can offer, not always assuming that it has to be that coming together.
1: That's interesting. I always say like one of the most underrated peace stories in the Bible for me is is Paul and Barnabas, they went their separate ways. (laughs) Right? It's like at some point you gotta say maybe it's better if we can, you know, maintain some respect and some love and some general terms, but day to day Maybe I'll need to see you every day. So that, that's an outcome as well.
2: Well, Jason, that's an excellent story because then we look at what happened within the church when they did go their separate ways and multiplied. So it was actually something that benefited the church rather than that assumption of, no, we have to work this out. We have to stay together because that's what God calls us to do. I, I think God calls us to at least have that, be able to have that conversation about what's going on, but it doesn't mean we have to stay together. It may mean something very different, but it doesn't mean the relationship isn't important to us. And sometimes it's because that relationship is important to us that we need to have that distance to do the work that we're going to do.
1: And, and of course, what's happening in our church and the awareness of, of sexualized violence is sort of part of a larger cultural shift. And we have the Me Too movement, and, and there's so much more awareness about sexualized violence in our culture and, and at all levels of society. I think a tricky part of this, and I'd be interested just to get your take on it, the idea that uh, on one hand, when people say, well, if, if an accusation comes up about Sexualized violence or in, in any form, the first step is to, you have to believe the person making the accusation or, or the person with the story and support them. And then, sort of the opposite of that, people say, Well, no, at least in the States here, we have this almost ingrained due process view where we say, No, it's you're innocent until proven guilty. And it seems very hard to marry those two. I, I don't know uh, how do you try to do that? How do you respect the stories and respect the pain that someone carries, but also? Yeah, respect to space where you say, you know what, yeah, we want to investigate, but we're not going to sort of, you know, judge you as guilty just right off the bat. How do we balance that?
2: That is probably one of the hardest things to balance. And that's where I think the church has gotten, gotten into difficulty because sometimes that person, if there has been harm, isn't at a point where they can even acknowledge it, the person who has harm. So if they can't acknowledge it, then we, as a church, we want to believe that person. If they say this didn't really happen, we as a church, we just want to, say, well, then if, You know, we have to believe that. So I think there is room where we say there has to be an investigation, there has to be due process, and I also think that's where we have to lean on someone outside. We don't all have that expertise to be able to know, did it happen, didn't it? We have to allow for that space. Um, And so that's, again, where there needs to be separation. One of the churches that I worked with where the person was caught in a sting operation was not acknowledging the harm, um, but because it was within the legal system, you know, that then it was public, so the church knew about it and they were talking about it. And so one of the things in bringing in someone from the outside is who has experience with sexualized violence and can look at that and say, um, I'm pretty sure this is a pattern of behavior. Whether that person wants to acknowledge it or not, it's a pattern of behavior, and you need to take those kind of precautions. But it doesn't mean not walk, walking with that person, even if they're in denial, but it does mean that we need to say, you cannot be in this space right now. We do need that time. We do need that separation. And if you do want to come to the space, here's some parameters. And I remember saying to the church, if he wants to come to church, yes. I mean, not that that can't happen if that's what he's choosing, but there will be someone with him. There will be some parameters about spaces where he can enter into because of the nature of what the crime was so uh, he won't be teaching Sunday school to the three-year-olds you know so those kind of things and we feel badly saying that and yet we know that there are victims who have experienced such harm and felt like they haven't been cared for so maybe it's that pendulum is swinging that way but it's because people have felt so their voices have so been silenced for so long so I think we hold it in tension but we you know for me I mentioned earlier it's not punishing someone It's about accountability. You know, there are programs, and many more in Canada than the U.S., but called Circles of Support and Accountability. And and sometimes that gets shortened to Circles of Support. And I always say we have to use the entire title. We have to say we want to provide Circles of Support for people who have committed harms, but we also are going to hold them accountable. And it's that accountability piece, I think, that we sometimes don't fully understand what that means, and that's where I think we need to have a greater understanding of what that looks like. So, again, call someone in from outside. Don't try and handle that. We have to have that understanding that this is something beyond us, but something that
0: we really need to be talking about as congregations and organizations. It seems to me, you mentioned congregations feeling badly about that accountability piece, but in some ways, would you say that really that work to hold people accountable is actually serving not only the community well, but serving that person well, because it prevents them from further doing harm?
2: Absolutely.
0: I think it's not doing anyone any good if we're just offering support, and
2: if that support is continuing that, that behavior, and if there's not, we're not providing a way for that person to also receive the help that they may need. And so, yes, I think we're not serving them well. We're not serving our communities well. Someone once asked me when they were talking about someone having to register as a sex offender. And so often the the case is not in my community. You know, we don't want someone in our backyard who we know has done that kind of behavior. They asked what I thought if that was in my community. And I said, well, I know that it's happening. I know that it's happening in all of our communities. So the fact that I could actually know where that person is. And we could talk about how to support and hold that person accountable, I think keeps us all safer, keeps that person safer, keeps us safer, rather than let's just send them to another community that they won't ask and we don't have to know. Someone will be harmed. So I think the more we know, we should use that information to keep all of us safe.
1: And Lorraine, you mentioned previously about the We Will Speak Out initiative that uh, MCC has been a part of. And I know during, during that, you did a lot of information gathering, especially with MCC constituent bodies. What came out of that that really caught your interest? So what kind of information did you glean that is helpful for us as we navigate these, these waters and these issues?
2: Well, I think, you know, as we listened to people and people filled out kind of the surveys that we put out there, I think, you know, there was that understanding that this is a topic that people really want to talk about and yet don't feel like they have a space to do that within our congregations. And so that's really encouraging because I think it's helpful for leadership to know. um, Those within our congregation wanna have these conversations, they wanna have training, they wanna be able to tell their stories. Many in particular of the women said, there's no one in my congregation who knows my story because I don't feel like that's a place where I can tell it. So how do we create kind of those Brave spaces to tell stories, uh, I think, is something that came out of that. You know, one of the things that we focused on, we brought a group of those within our constituency. We brought a group together to kind of read that final report and hear what what people were asking for. And so we came out with two kind of priorities. One was church leadership. You know, how do we equip church leadership to be able to have these kind of conversations? And the second one was men. How do we talk about healthy masculinity? And that that's something that's really significant for men and women, because when we talk about sexualized violence, it, do, it harms both. It harms our community as a total. And so we want to be able to have these healthy conversations. So those are two ways that we're prioritizing. And so one of the ways we're actually working at that is uh, we're planning a series of six webinars starting in April. So we'll have three in the spring and three in the fall where we were actually having people come on to talk about what does healthy masculinity even look like. We're having people talk about how do we as a congregation talk about healthy sexuality. We're asking people to talk about what happens when sexualized violence does occur. So those are some of the webinars that we're really looking forward to asking those from across uh, the constituency of MCC to be involved in, to help us have conversations about. I think that's one way that we can engage our constituency to be able to answer these questions and have people join us in these conversations.
0: Well, Irene, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. If people want to find out more about any of the MCC programs that we've talked about today, where where would you send them? Where should they go? They could go to mcc.org, they can look under restorative justice. We also have a We Will Speak Out
2: webpage that they could go to. Right now we don't have all the webinar information up there yet, but that's our plan is to put that up there. So I would say they could go to that webpage. So we will speak out under MCC or just the mcc.org page to locate
1: that. Thanks Lorraine. Thanks for the work you're doing. It's it's very heavy stuff, but very needed. And uh, thanks for sharing your expertise with us here on the Peace Lab.
2: Well, I'm happy to be with you. Thanks for asking, and I look forward to more conversation.